Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. All right, my heart is full this morning. And uh, I tell you, preaching in this environment, it's like trying to grab a, a, a little, you know, it's like trying to grab a leaf in a whirlwind, just trying to, trying to figure out what to preach on. Uh, I, had, I have some direction. Don't, don't think I just wait till this moment. But uh, I, I study and read and, and uh, do that continually if I wasn't preaching. But uh, I, I have a lot of my heart this morning, and so we're just going to ask the Lord to help us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. For your word this morning. And Lord, we thank you that you left us a book that speaks to us. Lord, that's relevant to our situation. Now, Lord, I ask that you would guide us. Lord, stir our hearts, provoke us to deeper surrender, to greater understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we've been having prayer meetings. I want to just remind you, we've been having prayer meetings Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, 7 to 8. Wednesday, we get in here at 6 to 8, uh, Wednesday morning, so that those of you that have to go be to work earlier can get in on some of the prayer. I know Roger McKim dropped by Wednesday morning and was here about 20 minutes yelling and shouting and kind of just stirred the fire and left. And I was so glad that he was here, man. He just stoked the fire. And... Uh, but we've, had, we've been having some great prayer times, and uh, this is just, it's a crucial time for us to be doing so. Uh, but during, one of the things I love about an environment of worship and an environment of intercession is their revelatory environments. God speaks in those environments. And so, man, I just get fed. God is speaking to me in, in, the, in that, that environment. And so uh, I was telling the pastor, I said, yeah, we've been having these prayer meetings. I've been very encouraged by the, the people showing up, but even more so by God speaking and giving very clear direction on what we're to pray for. And, and that's always fun that someone will come and say, man, the Lord's speaking this to me. And someone will pipe up. I had a dream about that. And someone else, I got this verse this morning and it all dovetails. And it's just God's little uh, encouraging mile markers to tell us, hey, I'm in this thing. And so uh, one of the things that as we were praying this week, I just really felt led. I want to say it was Thursday morning, uh, began to just remind God of the price paid by our forefathers. This grand experiment called the United States of America that was different than any other nation that has ever, ever been established. And they wanted to base a governmental structure, literally the form of government, the structure on scripture. They wanted to have, they wanted to study the scriptures. And if you look at the early days of our nation, even, even in the, the Senate and the House, they would be debating matters and one would stand up and refer to uh, a passage out of scripture. Another one would say, well, what about, this commentary says this. And they were arguing scriptures to try to determine how to move forward as a nation. This is, this is a rare thing. And the, the, the prosperity and the freedoms it's afforded us are, are unprecedented in all of human history. There's a reason that up until the communist, uh, you know, the Soviet Union fell apart about 25 years ago now, was it 30 years ago now, uh, there's a reason that they had walls to keep people in and then other nations that are built on our form of government and a biblical worldview had to have walls to keep uh, manageable immigration People are wanting to get in while people were wanting to get out of the other form of government. There's a reason for that. It's not a coincidence. And so I was just asking the Lord, uh, just, just reminding the Lord, and this scripture came back to mind. And we, we've talked about this. Uh, it's hard for me sometimes. I do speak other places, and so it's hard for me sometimes to remember how recently I spoke about things here and where I spoke some other place, and I'll have a conversation with someone else. And I know that look in your eyes. Sometimes you're like, Pastor, you said this recently. I, I've seen that look, and I apologize. So we just got to put up with each other. But I was reminded of this verse, and we did visit this a number of years years ago, but I was reminded of it again. It's Psalm 132 verse 1, and listen to what it says. Oh, this is the NIV. Oh, Lord, remember David and the suffering he endured. It's a, it's a prayer. Now, I'm convinced it was prayed by Solomon. 
Uh, and if you look at what, what this passage, Psalm 132, begins to unpack, it really gives the backstory on David's life and where, David, uh, where David's hunger for God began to be cultivated. That where, where did this hunger, where, why was it that David was a man after God's heart? That word is an action word. He was after, he was in hot pursuit of the heart of God. What was it about David that caused him to be so hungry for the things of God? And for God, because in turn, God was so affectionate towards David that centuries later, God would say this, for the sake of David, I will do this thing. David's life had such an impact on God's heart that for centuries God was still acting for David's sake. For the sake of my friend David, who's been dead for a long time. He was with God, you know, in heaven. But he was, God was referring to activities on earth. He said, I'm going to do this because of what David did centuries ago. We need to catch that. We need to, we need to realize the influence that we can have on the heart of God by our heart posture. That your life can affect the heart of God. And I don't know about you, but I read that and I, I get jealous that God, I, I want to have, not, not because, not, not just this thing that I want to have influence with God, and I do. I want to have influence to see his purposes met. It's not for some selfish thing that, Lord, I want a bigger house and a nicer car. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about getting near the heart of God so that we begin to adopt his values, his dreams, his desires, and we pray him back to him and we see movement so that Jesus' heart is satisfied for what he gave his life for begins to be realized in my generation. I want to see that. And I want to be a man that has influence with God. There's a verse that says, uh, I mentioned this verse recently and someone brought it to me and corrected me and I appreciated that. It was yeah, because I get used the wrong names, but I, I want to say it was even if Noah and Daniel uh, were to pray, I would not do this thing. What, what that verse is telling us is that there are some people who have more influence with God than others. We don't all have the same pull with heaven. We don't all have the same influence before the throne of God. So that begs the question, God, how do I get that? Lord, how do I become a man that moves your heart? Lord, I want my heart to move your heart. I want to pop myself. I want to live in such a way that I can move your heart and I can cooperate with you to see heaven come in my generation. I don't want to just pray prayers because I'm told to pray prayers. I want to expect results because that's why we pray. And so how do we, how do we become people of influence? And Solomon understood something. And the reason I say Solomon wrote Psalm 132 is if you look at the dedication of the temple, you track that, you look through that Psalm 132, and the outline of Psalm 132 is very similar to the outline of the dedication of the temple. Chase it down for yourself later. And look at there's certain things that show up in both passages. And what Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple is reflected in this psalm. It's really the backstory. And he's saying, oh Lord, remember my dad David and remember the suffering he endured. Now that begs a question. Why would Solomon bring up the suffering of a dead guy? What difference does that make now? I'm sure Solomon was, was grateful for the influence of his dad's life personally, but why would he talk about the influence and the behavior of his dad who's now dead? What difference would that make in prayer? Solomon understood something that is often overlooked, that many of us don't understand, and I hope we can come to an understanding this morning. That suffering moves the heart of God and that it will leverage the heart, that, that God will leverage that suffering long beyond your physical life. God will leverage what you do in life long after you're gone if you live the right way. So much so that your children can come before God and say, God, I come to you and I want to remind you the price my mama, my daddy paid. I want to remind you, and it will move the heart of God. Suffering means something to God. Not just suffering for suffering's sake, 
but suffering in the will of God. So let's look at that passage. I think that'd be a good place to start. I'm going to read out of the ESV this morning. And uh, it says it a little different. There's different translations. They all mean the same thing. I like to read from different translations. It gives you a fuller meaning. Listen to what verse 1, it says, Psalm 132, verse 1. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the suffering, all the hardships he endured. Isn't that interesting? Lord, remember this in David's favor. What he's saying is, God, I still, I remind you of the way my daddy lived, but I also remind you of what he prayed, and I'm asking you to continue to answer those prayers because of how he lived. Now, I know that sounds like legalism, doesn't it? It sounds like I'm saying that you earn the answer to your prayer. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that the lifestyle of David in pursuing the will of God moved the heart of God. And hopefully we can come to an understanding of that this morning. Listen to how he said, he goes on and he says, verse 2, He swore to the Lord, he vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or go get into my bed. I will not give my sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, how does Solomon know this? Because we know from Proverbs that Solomon wrote, he said, when I was a young boy, I would sit at my father's knee and my father would teach me wisdom. And he would tell me, boy, listen, watch out for the adulterous woman. Boy, this is how you do money. <laughs> and he would sit at his dad's knee. And Solomon had the, the, the wonderful privilege of sitting at the knee of David, the man after God's heart. And he discipled him. And he prepared him to make the right decision when he got the opportunity of a lifetime. Because in a moment, there was a moment in Solomon's life, God said, you can have anything you ask for. And Solomon made the right request because he was prepared by a godly father to ask the right thing. There are opportunities you may not be able to give your kids, but you can prepare them for those opportunities in advance by putting the right things into them. And so Solomon sat at David's knee. And I believe David gave Solomon this backstory. There are things about David we would not have known had Solomon not wrote this psalm. Let's go on and see what it says. Because, well, let's just pause there because uh, what, what Solomon just said is David made a vow to the Lord and said, I'm not going to take any rest until you have a resting place. We know in another passage, David, David said it this way. He said, it's not right that I have a palace lined with cedar. Cedar walls were a big deal back then. He said, it's not a right for me to have a, a palace lined with cedar walls where, Lord, you're living in a pup tent. That's essentially what he was saying. And so the, he said, I'm going to, he, he went to Nathan the prophet, and the Nathan the prophet said, do whatever's in your heart. And he gets ready to build, and, and then the, the, the Lord speaks to Nathan and said, you spoke too soon. And go to David and say, I know what's in your heart, but you're not going to be the one to build the temple, but you can store it up. And I am going to give a throne to you. And we see that same story here. Essentially, David makes a vow to God in Psalm 132, and God turns around and makes a vow to him. David said, I will not rest until you have a resting place. Man, I feel that this morning. Do you know that God is still looking for resting places? God is looking throughout the earth. I believe every region of the earth, God is searching. Is there a people that will provide for me a resting place? That will provide a throne of praise that I can find rest? That's what God's looking for. And there was something in the heart of David that said, I will not rest until I can build a resting place for the Lord. Later on in this psalm, God makes a vow to him. Because of the vow you made, it's the, same, it's the same conversation that we see in another place in Scripture. I, I, it's, it's in uh, 2 Samuel, okay? I, I don't know the address. Uh, but he's telling, he, God tells David, he said, I'm going to build for you a throne. I'm, David said, I'm going to build you a house. God said, no, I'm going to build you a house. And that house will never come to an end. And you will always have a son that will sit on the throne. It went to Solomon, but today, 
the Messiah, King Jesus, the Son of the living God himself is known not only as the Son of God, but as the Son of David. What an amazing honor God gave to a mere man to refer to his son as the son of David. And it was in that way that God fulfilled that promise to David. And David, I mean, Jesus literally rules and reigns in the heavens from, Scripture says, the throne of David. The physical throne, we don't know where that thing is. It's long gone. But the spiritual place, that place in the spirit that King David secured, Jesus rules from there. And he will rule and reign from that place for all of eternity. He'll sit on the throne of David. There was something about this guy's heart that so captured God's heart. And that needs to, that needs to be like salt in our mouth that makes us thirsty, that makes us hungry. I want to know how to be that kind of man. I want to move the heart of God. So let's read on here. He says, behold, we heard about it. So now what, what we have here is David has told Solomon the story when he was a little boy. He said, Solomon, I want to tell you how I first met the presence of God. I want to tell you the backstory. And so Solomon is reiterating what his dad told him. That's what this psalm is. So he says, we heard about it in Ephathra. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. He's referring back to where the Ark of the Covenant was under Saul's rule. This was uh, about the 17th year of David's life when the Ark of the Covenant was moved to Ephathra. And, and Jar- Ephathra is just another name for Bethlehem. And David grew up in Bethlehem. And it says that David, when David was a little boy, uh, matter of fact, this is a side note, but you know what Bethlehem is called by the angels? The city of David. That, that's interesting because Jerusalem is the city of David because David conquered it. But the angels also recognize Bethlehem as the city of David because he was birthed there. Even that, in that, that affection that heaven has for David, oh, that's the city that produced David. I mean, there's a place to find favor with God. There's a place where God's heart is moved by how you live your life. Man, I'm jealous for that. I want God to look at Ankeny. He can refer to it your place too. But I want want the angels to look and say, oh, that's the city of Dave Olson. That's that's, That's the city he lives in. I believe heaven looks at things from a different perspective. My phone is ringing. Hello? No, I'm just kidding. Oh, it's my computer's ringing here. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That was the Lord's way to get me back on track. Okay. Listen to this. Okay. Listen to what he says. So he says, he heard about an ephathra in the fields of Jar. See, the Ark of the Covenant was moved to Cariath, Jerem. And it was, if you do the math, I don't have time to, to, to look, but you can, you know when the Ark of the Covenant was moved to Cariath, Jerem, and what year it was in, in Saul's reign. You know how old David was when Saul died. And if you do the math, you can find out the, uh, the hour of, or the, the time in David's life when the Ark of the Covenant arrived. And it arrived around his 16th, 17th year. And it says, we heard about it in Bethlehem. David's saying, I heard the ark arrived. I'd heard about it. And we stumbled about it in the fields of Jar. That's another word for Cariath germ, right? Where it was take, where it was kept. And there was something in David's heart, the ark, the ark of his presence, where God said, I will dwell between the cherubim. There's something in David's heart heard, oh man, the presence of God has come to our region. I've got to go see it. I've heard about it. I stumbled upon it. And I believe what, what Solomon is telling us, this is where the heart of David was hooked. This is where David became hopelessly ruined for the ordinary because he'd encountered the presence of God. And for the rest of his life, he dedicated his life to the purposes of God and establishing a resting place for heaven. But here's the awesome thing. The commitment of David towards God was reciprocated by God towards David. Because this is relationship. This is not some legal arrangement. 
This is relational. And so there's this mutual exchange of affection between God and David. And David said, I'm going to build you us. God said, I'm going to build you one. I'm going to build you a, I'm going to arrest you, but I'm going to build you a resting place. I'm going to enthrone you. David said, I, I, God is enthroned in the praise of his people. God said, I'm going to enthrone you. And there's this authority that God gives to David. And so we read here, he says, he, we, he heard about it in the fields of Jar. Let us go. So David was hungry to go. Look at verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he would not turn back. One of your sons, one of the sons of your body, I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, that I shall teach them their sons also forever. So sit on your throne. Now look at verse 13. And this is why. For the Lord has chosen Zion, for he has desired it at his dwelling place. There, if you look at the dedication of the temple, Solomon makes this statement. God, you didn't choose a place for your temple. You never chose a city in which your presence would live. But you chose my father, David. In this passage, it says, the Lord chose Zion. So what Solomon is the author of both. What he's saying is, God didn't choose the place. He chose the man who chose a place. And then God said, I'm choosing the place you chose. I want you to catch that for a moment. If you are a person that can attract the presence of God, the way you posture your heart, that God will choose the place you choose. I don't need God to choose Ankeny for the next outpouring, because I do. I just need to make sure that I can be choosable. And if I can position my heart, God, God will choose this place. Now, if he can find a couple hundred people that will choose him. We can change history from this place. Now, let's jump to another passage. Look, look at, let's look at uh, Psalm 22. Psalm 22. This is a famous passage. Uh, you may not be immediately familiar with it, but you will once I read it. Look, listen to verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. This is a messianic psalm written by David. It was prophetic. It came out of David's own experience. David is feeling abandoned by God. He's crying out to God in his sufferings, in his situation. He's crying out and saying, God, why don't you answer? Why don't you listen? Lord, you've abandoned me. Why have you forsaken me? But he's staying in the pocket. He's still crying out to God. Never realizing that this would become a prophetic passage that Jesus hanging on the cross as the son of David would reiterate to God. As he's, as he's hanging, dying, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he gave up the ghost. Listen to the next verse though. Yet... You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And they, in you they trusted and would not be put to shame. So we have two famous verses that are often uh, quoted separately from one another. The one, my God, my God, why thou forsaken me? It's, it, it, David's crying out in his pain. He's feeling abandoned. But then he quote this other famous passage. It's where we get the words, God is enthroned in the praises of his people. We say that stuff all the time. I say it all the time. You, in the body of Christ, it's a, it's a familiar phrase. And it comes from that passage. It's true. Literally, the word uh, God is enthroned, uh, it it, it literally means to provide a resting place, a seat. Uh, a Japanese version says, uh, God's provided a chair that he will sit down if we praise him. P praise is the chair we bring in that he will sit on. And from his enthroned place, he'll begin to move and he'll begin to rule and reign. But what we need to realize are these two verses are together. They're, they, they're immediately in the same context. The most valuable praise that you have is when you feel like you're being forsaken. 
when it seems as though God is not listening, when it seems as though the relief you so long for isn't coming, that's when your praise is most valuable. It's easy to get your praise on when God is doing everything we want him to do and everything's smooth sailing. But the praise that most enthrones him is the praise that takes place when we're feeling most abandoned. And will you stand your ground in the midst of that place when all hell is coming against you and life isn't going the way you wanted it? In fact, life seems to contradict what you know the word says is true about God. Will you take your stand there? And what I'm here to tell you this morning is that that is how ground is taken in the spirit. Let me read you one other verse that's been on my heart this morning. If I can find it here. Look with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14. Look at verse Verse 1, and then we'll jump down to verse 6. Acts 6 and 7. And 1 Samuel 14. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But they did not tell his father. Look at verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. It's a beautiful little snapshot of how ground is taken in the spirit. How God wants to give you more in life, more ground. He wants to, how he wants to release those things that he has destined for you into your life. It's a beautiful picture of how God's kingdom comes to earth. This is how, when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. This is the manner in which it happens. What does this have to do with that? Here's what it is. Jonathan was the son of the king. He was the prince, the crown prince. And he had an armor bearer. And the crown prince was out to pick a fight. And he was looking for someone to go with him. And they would be together, they would become the bait to draw the enemy into a battle. It was a crazy plan. But that's the picture for you and I. And what we need to realize is whenever God wants to do something new in human history, in your individual life, corporately in a region, you fill in the blanks. Whenever God wants, uh, when God is moving to accomplish something fresh, what he's going to do is he's going to pick a fight. But he's got to find someone who will go with him into battle. Here's the bad news. You are the bait of heaven to lure hell into a battle. God wants to use your life to draw the enemy in. And the battle will be fought and God wants to give you the victory. But it's going to be a battle. See, Jonathan had an armor bearer. An armor bearer is an interesting thing. It's, it's very similar in one sense to a cup bearer. You got an armor bearer and a cup bearer. A cup bearer was a very... Uh, prestigious position but a very dangerous position because ancient kings were often the uh, target of assassins and so they would try to poison the food poison the the drink and so if they poisoned the wine and they gave it to the king he it, he would die by drinking the poison so what he would do is he would have a cupbearer that would always taste the wine before the king now a cupbearer had to be a very trusted individual he had to be someone that loved the king more than his own life so that he would drink before the king and he would make sure if there's anything coming at you, it's got to go through me first. That's the idea. And in that sense, an armor bearer was the same thing. An armor bearer was chosen to be the, 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 the partner in battle of, a, uh, of somebody who was a hero in the culture. You remember Goliath. He was a, a Philistine hero. He had an armor bearer. The, the most valuable 
warriors had armor bearers. Not everybody had one, but the valuable ones did. A crown prince would have one because his life was of great value to the kingdom. And a great warrior would have an armor bearer. And it would be somebody that in and of himself, he had shown that he was uh, you know, very skilled at war and that he was a valuable person. He could be trusted with the life of a great individual. David began his military career as an armor bearer for the king and became in and of himself a very a great warrior, a, a general that would take them into battle and became the king. So the idea is that prince, the crown prince, Jesus, is looking, he's looking throughout the earth right now, and Jesus has an attitude, and he's ready to pick a fight. He's looking to take some ground in this hour of human history. There are some things. He's looking at the landscape, and he's saying it's not right that there are Philistine garrisons on the promised land, on the land promised me by my father. And I am out to pick a fight and make war so I can remove them off the land. But he will not go to battle alone. You and I, we'd like him to. We would like Jesus just to go to battle alone. Hey, Jesus, I'm going to sleep in this morning, and you let me know when the battle's won. It doesn't work that way. He turned to his armor bearer and said, hey, let's do this thing. He needed someone to go with him into battle. One of the great fallacies of of Western Christianity is an overemphasis on the finished work of Christ. Let me just let that settle for a moment. Let me say it again. I want to mess with your theology this morning. One of the great fallacies of Western Christianity is an overemphasis or a misappropriation of the finished work of Christ. Now, I want to let that upset you a little and just let it settle before I explain what I mean. The finished work of Christ fits under the heading theologically of soteriology and Christology. Okay, salvation, the finished work of Christ has to do with soteriology, which is a study of salvation. It ha- it's part of Christology, Jesus' finished work. But ministry has to do with pneumatology, the Holy Spirit. And whereas over here, the finished work of Christ, when it comes to salvation, I'm just a recipient. I rest. I kick back and I lay back and I just receive. Woohoo! Do it all, Jesus. And it's a free gift. But when God wants to accomplish something else in the earth, he's looking for someone to enlist to go with him into battle. And in that sense, you are no longer a recipient because to take more ground in human history, to do things now for the kingdom of God, it takes a participant, not a mere recipient. There is suffering to be suffered. And somebody has to be willing to say, I'm willing to be the person. And it is in this sense that Paul said, let, I will fill up in my body that which remains of the sufferings of Christ. Well, wait a minute. I I thought this thing was finished. I mean, remains of the, the sufferings of Christ. I thought it was the finished work of Christ. So if it's the finished work of Christ, how can there be some sufferings left over for Christ? It's those sufferings that are to be suffered or experienced, embraced, even chosen by his body, by his people. And in that sense, we we enter into the sufferings of Christ. There is still some suffering to be embraced for all that is in the heart of King Jesus to be realized. And he's looking, do I have an armor bearer that will go into battle with me? Do I have somebody that will say, I'll go with you? You got to understand, this armor bearer had to be nuts. Because they're going to go to an enemy citadel. And literally, you read the passage, it's on a cliff where they could just hang over the side and rain down arrows on them. It's bad enough to have to storm a wall. But when you have to climb a cliff to storm a wall, it's really bad. But he was willing to go into battle with the prince. That's what God is looking for. And there are things that God wants to release to us that we will never have unless we're willing to go into battle. And we need to understand 
to battle it. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, sometime in the last month or so, about how whenever we are praying, there are always two fronts to the battle. We are not just fighting a battle on one front. There's two fronts to this battle. And that makes war a little more challenging. When you can't put all your resources at one place, we're fighting two fronts right now. There's the internal battle of my own surrender and the external battle of the situation I'm praying about. And the, the whole process of prayer, as I am praying about this, I get drawn into this internal battle where the enemy begins to afflict me and cause me to want to get an attitude about the internal battle. God's trying to bring me to a deeper place of surrender. It's exactly what Jesus was experiencing in the garden when he said, not my will, but thine will be done. He was admitting, God, I've got, a, I've got an opinion here. I've got a desire here. And it's not the one you have at this moment. I don't want to have to go to the cross. But if I have to, he was wrestling in prayer until he could come to that fully surrendered place. And then Jesus died in the garden before he ever died on the cross. He just walked out. What he settled in the garden, he walked out at the cross. And if we don't deal with those things, you see, because that, that's the moment. The, those, that's where things are won or lost. It's in that internal battle. And see, if we don't understand the nature of the battle, when you're praying about something, what the enemy does is we're, God is using your life as bait to draw the enemy into battle. That means you're going to be living in a war. But if you understand that, the internal battle of your praise, if you can live that Psalm 22, my God, my God, I feel like you've forsaken me, but yet you're enthroned on the praise of your people. And you worship him in that spot. You are consecrating that territory. You're consecrating that spot. This is how you secure the title deed spiritually to space in the spirit realm to things in your life. How do you get the title deed? How do you gain victory in areas? It's not just receiving it. It's getting in there and fighting for those things and crying out to God as intercessors, as people who are gonna get in the messes and just live that thing out and worship him anyway. The strategy of the enemy is in the midst of the battle when you're crying out to God and you need to see deliverance. The strategy of the enemy is to do one of two things. Distract you by your pain and inconvenience of your trial or offend you by the trial that you are experiencing and get you offended with God. It's exactly what David was going through. He was saying, God, I don't understand this. Why have you forsaken me, Lord? I don't understand what's going on. I know you. This is not like you. You ever been there? In the midst of your, your trial, that is the most important time. That is what is meant by a sacrifice of praise. And so our praise, that's when it's crucial. That's when... That's, that's where the battle is won or lost, on that ground. And we need to, we need to enter, enter into the battle understanding that our life is the battleground in which God's kingdom lands. And when God wants more territory, when he wants his kingdom to manifest in a greater way, then there's a battle for that ground and I'm going to experience the warfare and I'm, I can't get offended and I can't get distracted. I need to keep worshiping him in the midst of that. And when I do, I am enthroning him and I'm taking that territory for him. And that is the avenue to increased authority in your life. You will never have authority over the things that you can't worship over. If you can't worship in a trial over those things. Let me, let me just close with this story. Many, I've told this story before, but it's, it's exactly what I'm talking about. You see, David made a vow to God, was drawn into a battle, but continued to worship God, and God enthroned him and granted him authority. Jesus, the same thing. Jesus, on the cross, was wrestling psychologically. Lord, why have you forsaken me? 
It wasn't that he was just in a disconnected way. Well, I got to say that verse now because, you know, this will fulfill a prophecy and he just said it out. No, he was feeling this thing. All of hell had literally had come against him. But he, into your hands, I entrust my spirit. That is probably the greatest statement of faith in all of history. On the precipice of death, Jesus makes that statement and just allows himself to fall into the hands of God. And so that's where the battle is either lost or won. It was a number of years ago now, we were, we were in a board meeting and we got done with the board meeting and, and I think I was just happy because it was a short one and that's a rare thing around here. And uh, so I got up and we said, okay, we're going to close in prayer. And I just, as we began to pray, and that's not uncommon, I began to lay my hands on different ones of the elders. And I laid my hands on, I think it was Ray Henderson first. And then I got about two deep and I laid my hands on Fred Stoker. And I saw Fred in the spirit. I'm going to tell you, that dude's a bad dude. He is like a, about a 30 to 40 foot long battering ram in the spirit. It was about as big as I am around. And it had this, it was like this polished oak battering ram. And on the end was this, this iron like, this animal with an open mouth. You can put coals in it and just hit the gates and break it down. And I thought, oh my goodness. I saw, I went to Rick Arrowwood and I prayed for him. And as soon as I began to pray for him, I saw Rick in the spirit years ago singing out all by himself on the keyboards, worshiping the Lord, just weeping. Many of you heard his test, his whole family, this awesome story of redemption about two wonderful people whose marriages disintegrated. Something neither one of them wanted and they fought for and it disintegrated. And I saw Rick in the spirit. Here Rick was, full-time ministry, a pastor with little children and his, his marriage ends. And I saw Rick. Now he's, no, he's been stripped of his credentials, stripped of, of his ministry, stripped of his marriage. And I saw him in the middle of the night worshiping Jesus with tears rolling down his face. And I thought, that's why I can enter the presence of God with Rick. Because that man took some ground through worship. He secured some, there is a opening in the spirit that Rick can walk through because it's a well-worn path. And then I thought, I need to go back to Ray. I'm, you know, now it's starting to flow. I always feel bad for the first person you pray for because it's, you know, it's like the water just dripping. When you get in the flow, then you go back. And So I laid my hands on Ray. And I want to tell you, don't mess with that man. I saw Ray Henderson and I was shocked. Ray is this stately, white-haired man you know, fairly small of stature, but in the spirit, he had the same head, but a, like a 25-year-old bodybuilder body. I'm serious. He, his, his chest laid out about this far. He could have just put a TV tray on it and ate off his chest. He was one big dude, and he was just sitting there, massive, these massive shoulders, and he had this armor on that was literally about this thick, and it was molded, so, you know, the pecs and the, the six-pack, you know, and, but he had the real deal underneath. He didn't need the molded one, and, he, and then at the top, I remember it curled. It had this curled uh, trim on it, just curled, but it was deeply gouged. I mean, it, you could, there were gouges this deep, but the, the armor was much thicker than the gouges. But I mean, he'd been hit with battle axes and spears and swords. And he was just sitting there calmly. And I'd, I'd look at him, this little man. I'd close my eyes and big man, little man, big man. And I just, I was, it made me weep. I was so blown away at the people that God lets me run with. I was so moved. I felt like I'm in, I'm in the house of heroes tonight. Just being able to lay hands on these men. And I saw Ray sitting there just so massive. And then all of a sudden the picture changed and Ray was standing there and this dark cloth came and came and, and shrouded him. And Ray began to fight and just tear at this cloth. And these were the words I heard. 
this, this accusation. The, the struggle of the son is the failure of the father. The struggle of the son is the failure of the father. And he just kept coming at him. And Ray was under this black cloth. And it was just like enshrouding him. And finally, Ray threw it off. And his armor was gleaming. And I'm like, oh, man. It was amazing. And I knew what it meant. And this is what the Lord spoke to me in that moment. He said, serve lentil stew. Come on, come on. Now some of you are like, huh? I'll tell you. You see, Ray and Joyce had a bunch of daughters. Wonderful. I mean, what you want a godly legacy. But I mean, all kinds of daughters and grandkids and great grandkids and just this godly family. And they had one son. And that one son was, a, was precious to them. He, they had a great relationship with them. I remember uh, doing their 50th wedding anniversary, renewing their vows. And their son brought his husband. And their son had gone through some things and was now a married man, married to a man. And he knew what the Bible said. And they loved him well. There was, there was tremendous affection and love that went back and forth from the son to the parents and vice versa and, and their, their son's husband. I, I, I witnessed and it was a beautiful thing. There was, there was honor and, and love between them. But this son knew what the Bible said and it, they'd had those hard talks and the, the son went through some really hard things and there were years that that thing was strained and they were contending for his salvation for him to come back to the Lord. And I knew that that was what that was in reference to. This son's struggle that the enemy had accused Ray. And what was amazing to me is the battle, at that moment, I saw this authority on Ray's life for families. I'm telling you, if you need a breakthrough in your family, get Ray and Joyce Henderson to put their oily hands on your head and release something to you. And I saw... This battle that was going on. And at that time, their son was still running from the Lord. He was far from God. Didn't want anything to do with that. But Ray was standing in victory. And I realized the real battle was a battle about the character of God and Ray's identity. Not the external situation. That is where the battles are lost or won. Will you allow your circumstances to redefine who God is? Will you charge him with being unjust and unfaithful? Or will you allow the enemy to use those circumstances to shape your identity? Or will you stand on the ground that God has assigned to you and come hell or high water, I am going to worship King Jesus. I am going to worship him. I am going to worship him. And I saw Ray in the spirit come out in victory. A few years later, Ray's son came back to the Lord, ended up dying as a fairly young man. But on his deathbed, he came back to the Lord and was very hungry for the things of God. And Ray and Joyce were able to just minister to that entire community out in Hollywood. It was a, an awesome thing. They're, they're the perfect people. Just and the embodiment of love and honor, but standing for truth. And here's where lentil stew comes in. The Lord spoke that to me out of that passage in first or in, in Second Samuel, rather, where it's talking about the mighty men of David. And there was one, I want to say it was Eleazar. It says that when the enemy came, uh, the Eleazar and some of the other soldiers were on this lentil patch. It's like a pea patch, kind of uh, a bean patch. They were on a lentil patch, and everybody gave up the ground because there was too many of them. They all took and hightailed it. But it says Eleazar, his hand froze to the, the sword, and he stood his ground, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And this is what the Lord was telling me, that your battleground can actually become a garden from which you feed others your victory. Serve lentil stew. But the fact is, you've got to stand your ground and not accuse God and not allow the enemy to accuse you and change your identity. You take that stand and you be willing to absorb the suffering of that in the will of God and not accuse God over it. 
Life is hard, man. There's, there are all kinds of things that come after us. But if we realize that in the will of God, when suffering comes away, there, are, there is some suffering we don't need to put up with. We need to overcome it. But there is some suffering that we, for righteousness sake, sometimes there's unfulfilled desires that we have to live with. But for righteousness sake, we take our stand. Sometimes there's, there's, there's shattered dreams, but for righteousness sake, we're not going to allow that to affect our worship. And we literally enthrone him, but in those places where you enthrone him, he'll enthrone you. He will give you the title deed to that ground. And you will have authority with which to feed others your victory. And that's what Solomon was doing. He was crying out to God. He was saying, God, I want to remind you, my daddy had the deed from you for this ground. You made a promise. I'm reminding you of what he suffered. And now, Lord, I want to leverage that in intercession. I want to remind you of the price paid. And it would move the heart of God. It get granted him authority because of what had been accomplished through David's life. Some of you are going through hard times and you're, you, you're experiencing things you don't understand. I'm telling you, take your stand for the principles of God's word. Don't get distracted. Don't get offended. Don't accuse God. Take your stand. And I'm telling you, God wants to give you a breakthrough from which you can feed other people, that you can give other people your victory. But you've got to stand and the, the most valuable praise that will ever come out of your mouth is the praise that comes in the midst of hardship. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I ask that, Lord, everyone here this morning, God, that you would make the application that is necessary. Lord, that you would minister to them. You'd strengthen them. And Lord, that you would reveal your heart. And Lord, help us to stand our ground Lord, we ask for a house of armor bearers, those who are willing to go into battle with you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.